0: It's Devin Peacock back with you again, doing my best Mike Stubbs impression. I know I said yesterday Mike would be back today, but he's a little under the weather, so we're giving him another day to rest his voice. You can feel fine all you want in this business, but if your voice isn't ready to play ball, not much you can do. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. Lots to get to without a moment to waste. We will be talking about General Motors. Canada Post and Maple Leaf Foods on the program today in that order. As you are aware, Canada Post workers are being ordered to stop their rotating strike as of noon. So that was supposed to have happened. To start tackling a massive backlog of mail, last night the Senate passed legislation ordering an end to five weeks of rotating strikes. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says 71% of members it surveyed supported back-to-work legislation with about the same amount reporting they'd been hurt by the strike. But the Canadian Union of Postal Workers says it's looking at options to fight the back-to-work legislation. We will talk to the Retail Council of Canada and the Postal Workers Union about the end of the strike. We will also talk about Maple Leaf Foods and their plan to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into building a fresh poultry facility in London. The only problem is it comes at the expense of some other Maple Leaf plants in the province, including one in St. Mary's. We will talk to Mayor Matt Brown about the investment, as well as Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. We will also talk about an alert you'll be hearing tomorrow. Only a test. They're testing the national alert system again, so everyone should be aware of that. Up first, General Motors. A day after General Motors dropped its bombshell announcement that it's closing its Oshawa automotive plant, the federal government is saying very little about how it will respond. On his way into a cabinet meeting this morning, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau repeated what he said yesterday, that his government will support affected workers. Obviously, our focus is on the families right now, making sure that we are uh, supporting uh, the folks who have uh, uh, who are facing difficult times. Uh, we're going to be there to keep the support. Provincial and federal leaders alike have conceded the futility of trying to persuade General Motors to keep the plant running beyond next year. However, the union representing upset workers at the GM plant in Oshawa is vowing, quote, one hell of a fight against the auto giant's plan to cease production in the city late next year. Unifor National President Jerry Dias told workers at a packed union hall that the Oshawa plant has won every award and is the best by, quote, every matrix. And he promised the union will fight tooth and nail against the planned closure. Dias will meet with Trudeau today in Ottawa. He will be joined by Unifor Local 22 President Colin James. He represents the workers at the Oshawa plant. Colin James is on the line now. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. What are you hoping to hear from the uh, Prime Minister during your meeting today?
1: We're trying to hopefully come out with a solution, hopefully have some support from the Prime Minister, and try and get this decision turned around.
0: What would support from the Prime Minister look like? We've heard a lot of politicians uh, say a lot of things in support of the union and their workers, but not everything um, really may be as effective as some other possible ways forward here.
1: So we have absolutely no interest in extra EI benefits. We would like to see our plant be allocated with product to keep our members working. It's not only the members of General Motors affected, it's also the members at all of our supplier plants, and there's a definite impact to the community when we talk about all the local restaurants, coffee shops, et cetera.
0: How committed do you think GM is to uh, leaving Oshawa and some of these other plants, Oshawa in particular, though, since that's our interest here in this country, or, or do you think they could be persuaded to have some new product go into Oshawa?
1: Well, I'm believe i optimistic and believe they can be persuaded to have some new product going to Oshawa. There's a 100-year history in Oshawa. The members at our facilities, not just EM, but also supply plants, have increased the productivity in the facility. Quality is second to none. And we have a conscientious workforce that goes in there every day and takes pride in their work.
0: When the last contract was agreed to a few years ago, did you think this was possible?
1: Absolutely not. We have a commitment for a four-year agreement, which would end in 2020, and we expect General Motors to live up to their commitment.
0: I just, I'm just, curious about how maybe this would differ from previous uh, discussions with the company, and I gather they didn't let you guys know at all that this was coming down.
1: No, we were absolutely caught off guard. Um, they're saying there's no allocation as of December of 2019. However, there's a year that, you know, they have one year to get some allocation. Uh, and mean, we understand that things are changing with technology. However, we should be part of that discussion and part of the solution.
0: I guess I just wondered, just based on in in the past, they've been uh, pretty open to discussing with the union, with governments about the future. This time they were not. Does that signal maybe a lack of interest in continuing, or can that be turned?
1: I believe it can be turned. However, time will tell.
0: What options are available to the union and to the provincial and federal governments here?
1: Well, I mean, when we're talking to provincial and federal governments, every other auto industry in the world, the government actually invests in the auto industry because the payback rewards, the dividends are tenfold. Right? The monies that our members spend in the communities and the tax base, I mean, it pays for itself over and over.
0: We're joined on the line by Colin James, the president of Unifor Local 222. So is that what you're really looking for? I guess partly uh, uh, the provincial government's not involved in this meeting, but obviously this is the federal government and Prime Minister Trudeau. You're looking for you know, a dollar commitment or a, a commitment to putting that forward to General Motors then?
1: If necessary, I believe General Motors has a responsibility, to start with, to uh, allocate a product to our facility. And if that means some support from the provincial or federal government as an investment, I believe it's, you know, it's anti to keep people working in this country.
0: What impact, if at all, does the new NAFTA deal have on this, either in terms of playing a role in the decision to end production or the ability to attract something new to Oshawa specifically or even Ontario generally?
1: Well, I... Ontario, uh, the auto hub in Ontario is the, has a workforce second to none. Um, and after the and Paris, the last 15 months, uh, Jerry Diaz, our national president and staff. You know, finally, you know, we thought we had some security after that was resolved, as per se. And here we go. Now we get an announcement that caught us all off guard after the fact.
0: What was the uh, the mood in the room uh, yesterday when um, you were all uh, speaking uh, to those uh, workers? I imagine, obviously, there would be um, frustration, anger, sadness, but uh, there seemed like maybe some optimism in terms of this doesn't have to be the end?
1: No, I mean, our members are devastated. They have demonstrated that they're willing to do whatever they need to do to keep the jobs here in Canada, uh, productivity and quality are second to none. We have a conscientious workforce, and, you know, they're proud to go into work every day and build the best cars in the world, best vehicles in the world. And, I mean, uh, the message that's being sent is not a positive one. You're number one, and the company wants to close your plant. It does not send a positive.
0: We certainly in London, you know, understand what it's like to see these jobs leave. And really one of the the, uh, the frustrating things is being like some, you know, little drips and drabs. Uh, obviously, you don't want the jobs to just disappear. But I almost, I almost wonder if it's somehow worse when we, you know, in, in Oshawa, we've seen it where that's, you know, there have been little cuts and cuts and cuts over the years. It uh, obviously adds up over time, but that frustration just uh, builds as well.
1: It definitely does. I mean, we've seen cuts. Cuts, we've seen plants, close. But, you know, when we're in the position we are today, when we are producing a quality vehicle, the message is not very good. I mean, we would like to see General Motors allocate product to this facility. We've got a hundred-year history and a workforce that's second to
0: How big a factor is Mexico in all of this?
1: I mean, it's ironic that, you know, we're talking about, our General Motors talking about moving to electric vehicles. However, there's no announcement to cut any of their facilities in Mexico. In the last 15 years, nine plants have gone to Mexico, and those are products that, you know, we used to build in North America. And, you know, to be quite frank, the Mexican worker cannot afford to purchase the products that they built.
0: This was something that you know was uh, looked at in the the new NAFTA deal, and I, I do believe there's you know there's parts that put uh, higher wages, or I hope there would be higher wages for Mexican workers, just to to even it out. Because right now it's almost not a it's not a fight, but it's not a fair fight when they can uh, pay their workers so little to the, the job that uh, Canadians are are doing as well.
1: Absolutely, and actually, work Mexican worker uh, on the NAFTA. You know, it was perceived that they would have a better standard of living. Well, their standard of living today is worse than it was 10 years ago. They have not benefited at all other than having jobs. But, you know, uh, what they're paid is $2 a day.
0: Colin, I uh, certainly appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: That is Colin James, the president of Unifor Local 222. He's in Ottawa with Unifor President Jerry Dias to meet with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about what comes next following GM's decision to close their plant in Oshawa. It will be an interesting, interesting conversation, and I don't know what comes next in this. I think what comes next is GM continues with their plan to close that plant. It's one thing to say you're going to fight, and that's what the union should do. That's their job. But GM, I just don't get the sense that GM is really interested in hearing from us in this situation. But we shall see. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more on a different union story. You're listening to London Live and Devin Peacock. And for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock, in for Mike Stubbs. Full mail service should have begun to return to normal across the country at noon today. Won't just happen overnight, but the process has begun. All postal workers are expected to be on the job as expected since the uh, Senate passed legislation last night ordering an end to five weeks of rotating strikes against Canada Post. The Canadian Union of Postal Workers says it's outraged with the order and will explore all options Not to fight the bill. The legislation provides a 90 day period in which the mediator. We'll work with both sides towards reaching a contract agreement. Canadian businesses are applauding the federal government for legislating postal workers back to work, saying we'll help clear hefty backlogs of mail ahead of the busy holiday season. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says it's pleased Ottawa listened to retail and business owners who described the five weeks of rotating strikes as an emergency for small firms and for customers. The question now becomes, uh, did the uh, back-to-work legislation come too late? Uh, We will uh, get uh, uh, to uh, Carl Littler from the Retail Council of Canada in just a few moments, but it's an interesting uh, time because we are, what, just a little under a month away from Christmas. When does the time come where you need to be sending off your parcels? Next half hour, we, we will be talking to... Uh, The union, to get their uh, take on all of this, the local union, Cup W uh, 556. The union has said they believe the backlog of uh, mail and parcels was overstated. So maybe it's uh, a case where if you're trying to send something or you're hoping something comes that you've ordered uh, for Christmas, it's a case where it'll be just around the corner. But the actual backlog, we don't yet know. We we have two sides saying different stories, but we don't yet know. It was interesting because when we were talking to uh, Carl Littler from the Retail Council of Canada last week, he was mentioning the days before Black Friday and obviously Cyber Monday being yesterday, as days when it would get to the point where in their eyes it would be too late to... To have this done in a timely fashion and then it could reach, you know, a critical stage as we enter the, uh, the holiday season. We'll see. But um, at a certain point, is enough enough? Or if you're with the union, I guess maybe enough is not enough. Before the strike started, October 22nd, there were months and months and months of negotiations between the two sides. At a certain point, something's got to give. If both sides are dug in, something's got to give. It can't continue indefinitely, or if it does, what does that say about the service? Now, you will have businesses who are saying, as I just said, that this for them was an emergency. In the future, is that an emergency? If you can plan for it maybe a bit more in advance? I don't know. But one of the questions raised during all of this has been, what is the future of Canada Post? What is the future of Canada Post in this country? We've seen some other countries move to privatize their mail delivery. It's not something you see across the board, but At a certain point, you wonder if that might be down the road, if that might be in the offing. Maybe. But Canada Post is increasingly becoming more of a parcel business. And so when you have Canada Post in the parcel business, along with other private businesses, I think at some point the question has to be asked, what is the point of canada post being a crown corporation that wasn't the question that was put to them the two sides in these negotiations but you could argue maybe it was hanging over them so let's uh, talk to carl littler from the retail council of canada uh, carl appreciate your time today thank you very much thank you what was your reaction uh, to the uh, back to work legislation and the end of those uh, rotating strikes Well, we're certainly pleased with
2: the end of the rotating strikes. Um, You know, we we would have preferred, of course, that they were able to uh, negotiate a deal at the table. But, you know, after after a year of negotiations and, uh, you know, almost six weeks of strikes, uh, you know, this is the answer that I think was uh, necessary in the circumstances.
0: When we were talking uh, last week about uh, all of this, you did mention that uh, you're hoping this might have happened a little bit earlier. Did the the legislation come too late?
2: No, I don't think it's too late. I mean, obviously, each passing day would have led to a mounting uh, mounting situation. Um, ultimately, you know, they're they're back at work, obviously, at full full throttle uh, the day after uh, Cyber Monday. So, um, you know, in a sense, that's timely. We were certainly concerned that if it dragged on much longer, that you know, you would have had a logjam that couldn't have been broken in order to get stuff out to, before, you know, through the holiday season and before Christmas time. But I think we probably dodged that bullet.
0: How long will it take until we know what impact the strikes had on the retail sector? Um, well, we are going to have to have a
2: look at online sales in particular, and probably also at in-store sales because there's probably a little bit of a gain on the roundabouts, what's lost on the swings. Um, we won't see all of that in detail, you know, until, uh, until the stats can numbers for November and December come out in, in, in uh, January and February.
0: I wouldn't be surprised since this began in October if some people still ordered online knowing the strike was happening, saying, well, it will get here eventually. That's not to say there weren't, you know, painful moments for retailers or business, but I wouldn't be surprised if people still continued to order online.
2: No, and I think they probably, you know, should feel reasonably confident in ordering online, given when the strike had ended. I think if it had gone on for another week, then uh, then I think people would have had to start taking some alternative methods, whether that's order online, pick up in store, or do your shopping entirely in store. Obviously, that's not practical for everyone and in every community uh, in Canada. Um, but I think we've got there. Um, they're a pretty diligent group of people, the the postal workers, as I think most people know. And while it's going to take a few days, I think, to clear most of the backlog, uh, I anticipate that we're going to be back to sort of normal service pretty quickly.
0: When we talked uh, last week, there was some concern maybe about the potential for lasting damage. This Canadian's a little bit slower to the e-commerce side of things. Is that still a concern?
2: Um. I think there will be a few people who will say, I'm going to be, you know, uh, I'm going to be careful about where I source things depending on the time of the year. Um, but I, I, I suspect that because I anticipate that, you know, everything that people are going to need, certainly for the holiday season, is going to get there in time, that that damage is not going to be deep. It was a concern because, of course, Canadian retailers um, are investing heavily in e-commerce. Um, you know, there's a lot in that. Distribution warehouses and information technology brings a lot of high-wage jobs and design and IT. So you wouldn't want people to become disaffected from that. But I think um, in this case, uh, we didn't end up in that full-blown crisis that we were fearing. So I, I suspect that the damage was pretty limited.
0: Carl, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: That's uh, Carl Littler from the Retail Council of Canada. We need to stop for news when we come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980, CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to keep our focus on Canada Post for a moment and hear from the other side of the coin. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says back-to-work legislation is never an easy choice, but it says Ottawa's decision to legislate postal employees back-to-work will help salvage the holiday season for small firms and consumers. As we said, mail service was set to resume at noon after the Senate voted 53-25 to pass legislation ordering an end to five weeks of rotating strikes. The Canadian Union of Postal Workers issued a statement declaring it's exploring all options to fight the back-to-work legislation. Negotiations have been underway for nearly a year, but the dispute escalated more recently when Cup W members launched rotating strikes back on October the 22nd. Those walkouts have led to backlogs of mail and parcel deliveries at the Crown Corporation operation's main sorting plants in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. The back-to-work legislation may be music to the ears for business groups, but not for the postal union. To discuss that further, we are joined by Karen Finlay-Russell, the president of Cup W Local 566. Thanks for your time today.
3: Again, you're welcome. It's, uh, It's nice to be able to talk to you today.
0: What was your reaction to the news of the uh, back to work legislation, I guess being proposed, but more so uh, passing uh, yesterday?
3: Um, well, I, I can't be surprised, but I was um, disappointed, I, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Disappointed in the government uh, not understanding um, our rights to negotiate a negotiated collective agreement. That's what it feels like to me. Um, we have that right. And it's now been taken away from us.
0: When the rotating strikes began on October the twenty second, did you think it would still be um, they would still be going on over a month later? Truly, no.
3: Um, I thought we would have been able to negotiate a collective agreement by now.
0: Would the rotating strikes? Do you think they were successful or not? Because I mean, certainly they put a lot of pressure, which would indicate success but we haven't got to the conclusion i don't know if either side really wants maybe canada post is happier with this uh than obviously the union would be but um they were certainly effective in drawing attention um to this because contract talks have been going on for nearly a year but uh for most canadians that was really under the surface
3: yes and i i I do believe that um the rotating strikes definitely drew attention to what was happening. Um, d- yes, you're absolutely right that most of the public had no idea that we'd been negotiating, and it was actually a year that we'd been negotiating. It's, I think, oh, just a couple weeks over a year at this point. Um, but uh, to, to show true success um, is not possible at this point in time. We won't know that until we see what the collective agreement looks like.
0: Uh, Just because it's been that year, what has stood in the way of there being a a deal here, do you you think?
3: My personal opinion is that uh, the corporation didn't want to deal with the union. They didn't want to give in to the demands of the union um, for safe workplaces, uh, for equality for postal workers, and for um, hiring more people so that there isn't so much overburdening.
0: How difficult can it be to negotiate with a Crown Corporation when when we've seen this before sometimes where uh, there is that back-to-work legislation that's kind of hanging over, or or the possibility of it anyway, that's hanging over it? It it can sometimes lead to the Crown Corporation maybe not being as willing to negotiate.
3: And I think that's exactly what happened this time. I I think that they always have that... um, law in their back pocket, the back-to-work legislation in their back pocket, and if they don't feel like cooperating, they don't, and they know we'll be legislated back.
0: At what point did you start to think that maybe the back-to-work legislation would become a reality? I mean, there have been calls for it for a while, but the government held off for a while.
3: Um, Probably yesterday afternoon, when I heard the Senate vote. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, because I I really felt that... um, by members contacting their senators and letting them know the impact and how they felt about it, that uh, some of the senators might have made a different decision or sent it back.
0: What is the mood of uh, postal workers now the legislation has uh, pa- has passed?
3: Many postal workers are um, dismayed, they're outraged, they're frustrated. Um, because we all just want to do our job and have the protections um, in our collective agreement that work for us as postal workers, and we don't have that now. We're going back to work under the old collective agreement. Um, And it's the holidays, which means that volumes increase, tension increases, hours increase. So they're they're pretty frustrated.
0: It's going to be quite the job. I mean, the holiday season is busy regardless, but We've got the, the backlogs uh, because of some of those rotating strikes that's going to create even more work for postal workers.
3: Definitely. I don't know that the backlog is as excessive as they say it is, um, and I'm not seeing much of a backlog in Ontario. We process a lot of mail in uh, 24 hours, so I think uh, the backlog won't take as long as Canada Post is predicting.
0: Do you think they were they were playing it up then, just to to increase the how serious or the severity of it all? Yes, I do. Do you have any concerns with uh, workers uh, back on the job now?
3: I absolutely do. Uh, it's uh, factual. It's in in the records. We're going to see at, at least uh, three hundred and fifteen disabling injuries um, over the next few months.
0: Just because, maybe even a month. Just because of uh, the weather uh, or, or for some other reason?
3: Well, the weather plays into it, but, but letter carriers being out on the street in the dark um, up until 9 o'clock at night um, plays into it. And then you add on top of that the mail volumes, um, and the corporation has the ability to force overtime to those letter carriers as well so they they may finish their own route and then they come back to the installation and the boss says, "You know what I have half of another route here that you have to go do now, even though it's seven o'clock at night
0: there was a a protest uh on Monday here in London. Are any more of those types of uh protests scheduled or considered, or would that does that effectively end with the back to work legislation
3: um At this point in time, there is no protests um, scheduled in London. Uh, But I can't tell you what national is going to direct at this point.
0: We have uh, 90 days has been set for the mediator uh, to see if a settlement can be reached. Do you think that's possible? I mean, what happens after 90 days, maybe if we are in the same situation we're in today? Well,
3: I'm not confident that a mediator is going to resolve the issue because we've had mediators involved all along. So, I, I'm not feeling confident about that. And uh, then we'll go to the next steps where we'll end up um, being arbitrated.
0: What's the uh, so that's that would be the next step where it's just the arbitrator just decides and and it ends that way.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, So they will arbitrate a collective agreement, um, and hopefully they'll realize um, our concerns and and we'll see some improvement in the collective agreement, but I cannot guarantee that.
0: What would need to change over the next 90 days for there to be a deal done, hopefully?
3: Uh, Canada Post would have to recognize... concerns about health and safety they would have to look at that forced overtime clause in our collective agreement the rsmc's would need to be paid an hourly rate and for all hours worked uh, not just the the scheduled time they're supposed to work because that's what's currently happening and they would have to increase positions um, across the country
0: we will uh, follow this with interest Uh, karen i certainly appreciate your time today thank you very much you're welcome you have a good day that's Karen Finlay-Russell, the president of Cup W Local 566. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. He is uh, off sick, hopeful to return tomorrow, but uh, we shall see. Sometimes with the voice, it's there and then it's gone. And... Then it's there and then it's gone again. So hopefully he's on the mend. Remember back in January when Hawaii was in a panic because they were about to, they thought they were about to be attacked? Luckily, we haven't seen anything like that uh, here. That happened because an employee pushed the wrong button. Worst case scenario. Back in May, you may remember officials tested Canada's emergency alert system. It was part of Emergency Preparedness Week. We're due for another test. It will happen tomorrow. I mentioned the Hawaii thing just because, now that was a test. This, you just, just so people don't freak out. A test happening tomorrow. Be aware. Each province and territory will have one test message distributed over TV, radio, and to compatible wireless devices at one fifty-five local time. With the exception of Quebec, their test will be at 2.55 local time. The Alert Ready system was developed with many partners, including federal, provincial, and territorial government agencies, Pelmorex, the broadcasting industry, and wireless service Providers it has enabled government authorities to deliver emergency alerts to Canadians during threat-to-life situations over TV and radio since 2015, and to compatible wireless devices since this past April. I should note not all Canadians are going to get a test alert on their wireless device. It may occur for a number of reasons, including uh, compatibility depending on your device, your connection to an LTE network, cell tower coverage. Settings, lots of different aspects. So be aware of that as well. Martin Belanger is the director of public alerting at Pelmer-X. He joins us now. Well, Martin, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So how was this system developed?
4: So it was developed many years ago. Um, I would say the the first iteration of the first time the system was launched was back in 2010, and it was really kind of an effort between uh, not only Palmarx, but all the provincial and federal government agencies and, and the broadcasting industry. And the main point was in case of an emergency, so uh, a situation that can pose a threat to life, uh, that can be an ember Alert, as an example, or a tornado. Um, the authorities wanted to have a a mechanism, a way of reaching uh, the public so they could have this critical information so they can stay safe. So the, the system, that's the purpose of the system, and that was built uh, many years ago, and, and since 2015, like you said, um, those alerts are on uh, TV and radio, and more recently in the past spring, um, now we have wireless. as one more way, one more tool to have those uh, critical emergency alerts sent to the public.
0: Yeah, TV and radio has been huge, but those wireless devices, I think, will really be important, and we've had it since April 2010. There have been a lot of Uh, times where it has gone through successfully. But everyone's got a wireless device these days, and oftentimes we've got it in areas where maybe we can help or we can uh, seek shelter if need be.
4: That's correct, and, and that's the main thing that we want the public to know is, is wireless is not the only way, but since so many people have a phone with them, uh, many of those phones are compatible, uh, so if they're connected to an LT network, and if they have the latest software uh, that is capable of receiving those alerts, so if there's uh, an emergency situation, or in the case of the test that is happening tomorrow, then they'll receive the, uh, the message on, on their device on top of radio and TV. And that's the main thing for tomorrow. Um, I just want to stress that this is a test, and this is. Uh, 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 there's no action required by the public so if you do receive uh, an alert on your phone or if you hear it on the radio on this station or if you see it on television there's no action required we just want to make sure that all the components of the system nationally are working as intended in the case of a real emergency
0: it will be at uh, this time uh, tomorrow almost in about five minutes or so uh, as you say it should be a test um, this is the second test of the year what significance does that second test carry and what do you hope to learn from it
4: well, the main thing about testing is um, we really want to make sure that the system is is ready in case of a real emergency. So testing is not just a one-time thing; it's uh, it's done regularly, multiple times uh, throughout the year. And the last really visible test that we that we sent out was uh, was back in May, as you as you said. And that's the whole purpose, is to figure out how can we improve the system. And it's really, at, at the same time, a way to raise awareness with the public so that people at home uh, or at work uh, are aware of uh, Alert Ready, which is Canada's emergency alert system. So in case it is used for a real emergency, then they'll know that it exists, and they'll know also how the alert will sound like and look like. So with the tone, when, when it's received on the phone or on, on the radio or at, on television, also what to, what to do when they have the instructions sent by the authorities.
0: What should people do and not do on Wednesday if they do receive an alert or don't?
4: So on Wednesday, once the alert is sent out, uh, like I said, at 1.55, so almost uh, 24 hours exactly from uh, from today, um, they will have it on, if you have it on your, on your phone or if you receive it on radio and television, there's really no action to take because that's the whole purpose of a test. Uh, it will clearly indicate that there is no uh, step or no action required by the public. Um, so people uh, might expect to hear the uh, alerting tone. So that's a very distinctive uh, sound, uh, which is done on purpose to make sure that uh, it's a kind of a heads up, a tap on the shoulder saying something is happening, pay attention so you can read the instructions and, and then follow the instructions. Uh, but in this case, for tomorrow, there's really nothing that the public uh, has to do uh, because that's the whole purpose of a test is just to make sure that people will receive it and to bring that awareness.
0: And if they don't receive an alert, doesn't mean that the, their phone's not working or there was a mistake.
4: That's correct. So um, if, uh, if you do not receive it on your phone, it could be for multiple reasons. Not all phones in Canada are compatible to receive those emergency alerts. Um, over time, um, the CRTC has the, the target that by April of next year, all new phones sold in Canada will be compatible. But if you have a phone that is a little bit older, uh, you may not have the, uh, the software that is capable of receiving those alerts. So that's, uh, that's actually uh, something that can happen happen. Uh, and that's why we have multiple ways. There's the cell phones, but also radio and TV and also social media as tools to receive and communicate those emergency situations and the test as well.
0: I do think it's important to mention too, I mean, uh, w- while this is a test, there already have, have been about 100 alerts sent out this year with uh, wireless devices. So the system does work. It's really a case of making sure it's coast to coast at this point.
4: That's correct, and I think in Ontario we've seen it uh, several times over the uh, the summer and even the fall. uh, Tornado uh, tornado warnings were issued, uh, and those emergency alerts were sent on radio and TV and compatible wireless devices across the province. And I think the most the one that we we may remember the most is the uh, Ottawa and Gatineau tornadoes uh, back in September, and, and uh, the system was credited for saving lives because people did uh, take cover when the tornadoes were approaching based on those alerts that were sent uh, on all those channels. So uh, this is a very critical system that is in place, and it is used at times for those uh, life, uh, uh, life-threatening situations, uh, but in case, like, for example, some parts of Ontario didn't receive an alert, there was no tornadoes or there was no uh, amber alert nearby, so this is why testing is important So for those that did not receive an alert, testing helps us to bring that awareness and also helps us to validate the system works in all areas of the country, including Ontario.
0: Finally, will there be more tests after this, or does that depend on how tomorrow goes?
4: Um, there's always multiple tests. Most of them are not necessarily visible to the public. Uh, the next one uh, will be in next May, so in May 2019. So until then, uh, there's always testing being done with all the partners. So those are the authorities and also the distributors, such as radio and TV stations and the wireless service providers. Uh, but the next big uh, visible test, such as the one we are having tomorrow, uh, the next one will be in May. So in between, we'll do more testing, but that may not be visible to, uh, to uh, the
0: public. Excellent. Uh, Martin, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
4: No problem. Have a good one.
0: You as well. That is uh, Martin Belanger, Director of uh, Public Alerting at uh, PELMAREX, And at basically this time, tomorrow, right now, you should be hopefully receiving that test alert. We need to pause and come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Just enough time to uh, tee up the second hour of the program. Uh, Second hour, we'll be talking uh, for the first half of it about uh, Maple Leaf Foods and their uh, major investment in London. We'll talk to Mayor Matt Brown and uh, Jerry McCartney from the uh, Chamber of Commerce. In the second half, we'll talk about gas prices in London. They're pretty great right now. How long will that last? Well, let's talk about Giving Tuesday. That and more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devon Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of London Live. This is Devon Peacock in with you once again. Mike is under the weather. The new council has not been sworn in yet. That will happen in a few days. New council will have their first meeting next Monday at the London Convention Centre. They will all be sworn in, but officially, that's actually going to happen this weekend. The current council ends at the end of the month. Even though it's a couple days, we can't go one, two, or three days without a mayor and a council. So, this council will be officially sworn in over the weekend. Then they'll have their first meeting. It will happen again in front of a crowd. On Monday, I mentioned this only because I can already tell what will be a focal point in the first state of the city address by incoming mayor Ed Holder, Maple Leaf Foods. They certainly picked an interesting day to announce a major investment in London. While everyone was still digesting the terrible news out of Oshawa, Came word Maple Leaf was going to spend $600 million on a new facility for London, $605.5 million to be exact. They will spend another $5 million on related projects over the next five years and will receive $34.5 million from the provincial government and $28 million from the federal government. Their new facility will be 60,000 square feet. It will employ 1,450 full and part-time employees to start once operations begin in the spring of 2021. Construction will begin this spring. The unfortunate news is that the plant in London comes at the expense of three other plants. Maple Leaf Foods will close their plant in St. Mary's by late 2021, and their Toronto and Brampton plants by mid to late 2022. Those plants are between 50 and 60 years old, they say, and their location, footprint, and infrastructure limit opportunities to expand and modernize to meet the growing market demand. The company plans to provide those employees with job opportunities at the new facility or other plants it operates, as well as services to help them eventually find new employment. It's tough news for St. Mary's, but hopefully those workers will get jobs in London. So we feel for St. Mary's, but this is great news for London. To talk about this, we're joined by London's outgoing Mayor Matt Brown. Thanks for your time today.
5: Oh, you bet, Devin. This is a huge day for London, and I'm so pleased to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a pretty big uh, pretty big day, one of the uh, the largest investments we've uh, seen uh, for this sector. Uh, I guess apparently uh, in the country, but uh, certainly for London, absolutely.
5: Oh, absolutely. This is a historic moment for London. We're talking about a 660 million dollar investment that's going to bring initially about 1400 jobs to our region. And that's their starting point. We learned today that they want to start at 1,400 um, permanent and part-time jobs and grow from there.
0: Uh, You kind of illustrated just in terms of the numbers, but how big is this really for London? Because this is a huge investment.
5: You know, in terms of impact, there's a lot of ways to measure impact. You know, one is the uh, 1,400-plus new jobs. There will be another 1,400 new jobs that are, Uh, spinoffs to this based on service industry and based on suppliers. And as well, we're talking about 300 jobs that will be based on construction. And so uh, it's going to have about a 1.2 billion, that's billion dollar impact on our local economy.
0: Can you talk at all about how long this has been in the works? Because these kinds of announcements uh, don't just happen. Sometimes they can take years.
5: Uh, Several years is what I can say. I know that Uh, These talks are always confidential, and I I want to honour that. We have a unique model here in London that allows uh, the London Economic Development Corporation to lead the uh, talks from the city's perspective. They work hand-in-hand with uh, many city staff that are really the unsung heroes in these types of situations uh, to bring things together. And then, of course, we need to work with our provincial and federal governments of the day to make this happen as well.
0: Why do you think uh, Maple Leaf decided London was the place for them?
5: Uh, you know, I think that it was the great work of the LEDC and, and our city staff, and it was also our gift of geography. We are uniquely positioned for agri-food, and we've seen uh, some significant investments over the past uh, ten or twenty years in that regard. This is by far the largest investment. So we think about uh, our location in southwestern Ontario. We are in the heart of the agricultural. Uh, area of, of our province, really the, the breadbasket of our province. We're also uh, positioned on the 400 series highways uh, far enough away from the GTHA that we can deal with congestion problems in a different way. That means there are about 125 million potential customers within a 24 hour drive. Uh, and thirdly, uh, we are blessed with having two Great Lakes that supply our local water system within uh, one hour in either direction. So all of those things add up to providing us with what I would describe as a, a niche market, a way for us to differentiate from other communities and uh, allow us to uh, uh, win a bid like this, win a massive bid like this.
0: We do have uh, a growing agri-food uh, sector. It's, uh, it's sprouted over the past uh, 10, 15 years, and I'm not trying to use puns there, but it's really been interesting just to see how it's, uh, how it's grown over the years.
5: It has, and that hasn't been by accident. The uh, London Economic Development Corporation, in uh, consultation with uh, the city councils of uh, of each of the day, have identified a number of serious priorities where we can win. And this is an area that we've identified, uh, as I spoke about earlier, uh, that is a niche market for us. It's something that we can do that other communities can't. And it just makes sense for us to focus our energies on things like, Agrifood, for example, and in a number of other areas as well.
0: Our, our location, in terms of you know proximity to the highways and even the airport, uh, also would play into our factor, just in, in attracting lots of businesses, but uh, also agrifood in particular.
5: Well, and the airport doesn't hurt a bit. We are blessed to have what I describe sometimes as a hidden gem, which is uh, an international airport within our uh, within our city proper, and uh, it's an airport that has a lot of room for growth as well. We see, I think, about six hundred thousand uh flights from uh, a, a commercial perspective in and out of London as well as a lot of cargo that it travels in and out of London uh, so we you know all of these things add up to um something that uh, that becomes a good fit now this doesn't happen by accident as i said before the LEDC is something that council makes a, an annual investment in it provides us with an arms length uh organization that can negotiate these deals outside of the political realm. I think that's very important. But something happened inside of the political realm that was extremely important over the course of the 2014 to 2018 Council, and that was a significant investment in industrial lands. We called it our industrial land use strategy. It was a very close vote several years ago, if you recall, Uh, and it is, millions and millions of dollars that are being directed to making sure that we have these types of land serviced and ready to go in the right places for when opportunities like this come along. And so hats off to Council um, from 2014 to 2018, and I really want to respectfully draw the attention to these kinds of investments to the incoming Council. Uh, This is a perfect example, as is Dr. Utker and a number of other uh, plants that have uh, made investments in London, as to why we need to make these investments uh, on the front end.
0: That leads to one of the questions I was going to ask in terms of, we, we know governments, politicians don't create jobs, but they can create the right atmosphere that can lead to jobs. Uh, that uh, that land is an example of that. Uh, what And London's done a lot to, to try and be in the position it, it was in today to attract a, a major uh, employer.
5: Yeah, and we do so at a loss. It, it's like a lost leader. Uh, you know, we hear um, stories about grocery stores that maybe sell uh, their milk or other produce at a loss, uh, so they can attract customers. Uh, we do that to some extent with, uh, our industrial lands. And so we will buy the land, uh, we will make the initial investment, uh, to service the land, uh, and then we will sell those, uh, those lands, uh, potentially at a loss. Uh, of course, the gain is the, uh, thousands of jobs and the, uh, multi-million dollar, uh, and in this case, billion dollar economic impact that, uh, comes from that kind of foresight. Uh, Wayne Gretzky used to say you have to skate to where the puck is going. and uh, This is a good example of what a council needs to do to ensure that we're ready and open for business when um, international uh, businesses uh, come forward and say we're looking for a location and we need it by such and such a date. We have to be ready.
0: Could this lead to similar investments uh, in the food sector or the agri-food sector? A lot of these businesses do like to be grouped together.
5: Oh, I think so. I, I think that if you go back uh, as far as 2001, uh, council under the leadership of Anne Marie DeSico Best, uh, started out in this direction and identifying agri food as an area where we can win. And, uh, the most recent example likely is, uh, Dr. Rutger Pizza, where we saw hundreds of, uh, new jobs created. Uh, a German company that decided let's stop making pizza in Europe and shipping it in containers across the ocean to North America, let's locate in an area that is really set up to be very close to our market, and that's also within the breadbasket of Ontario. One of the best things about a Dr. director or uh, um, uh, an investment like we see today is that they are buying produce from our geographic region. And so this is, of course good for London, but it's also really amazing for Southwestern Ontario as a whole.
0: I actually thought of uh, Amazon when this news was announced, just because based on all the excitement that was generated uh, in Canada, the United States, when Amazon said they're looking for their second headquarters, everyone was scrambling uh, for that, and hopeful they would be uh, the location. Uh, we obviously may be a bit uh, small for that, but you sometimes don't know what's always uh, coming your way. And uh, there's a lot. And just to go back to where we almost began, there's a lot that goes underneath the water, um, where the, the duck, you know, it's kind of calm on the top of the water, but it's uh, furiously going underneath, um, and that seems to be the case here.
5: Yeah, you know, absolutely. This has been a project that we've been working on for years. Uh, I can't go into the details, but uh, I can say that uh, the London Economic Development Corporation model allows us to do this. It allows us to have these important conversations with potential investors, uh, and it allows us to make decisions that um, can really, you know, have massive, massive positive impacts for our community. And when I travel across Ontario or Across Canada, I point to this model as one that might make sense for uh, other communities as well. And that's another takeaway that I would really like to leave uh, in a respectful way with the incoming council that the LEDC works. And when we look back to the 2010 to 2014 council, there was really a move to bring, uh, you know, the economic uh, decision making in house. And uh, I argued strenuously against it at the time. Uh, Also, during my term as mayor, I argued strenuously against that because this is the kind of thing that can happen when we have business leaders who devote their time on a volunteer basis to a board of directors that's an arm's length from the political, political sphere. This, these are the kind of things that can happen.
0: Certainly only a couple of days left in your tenure as mayor, but certainly a nice way to, to end it, I would say.
5: <laughs> it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, you know, this is uh, not really about uh, me, certainly, uh, and, and not about council either. I, I do want to tip my hat the council for having the vision to take the kind of risk that they did when they were developing the strategic plan to make sure the lands were ready. But this was a whole team of people, uh, London City staff that were working diligently, uh, the LEDC, and then of course uh, investments from other levels of government as well. Finally, uh, to see uh, you know this this really impressive Canadian company come forward and say, uh, "Yep, yeah, London is the place for us. That's where we want to make." A $660 million investment, uh, that's, uh, that's just great news for everybody.
0: Mayor Brown, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Uh, you bet, Devin. Thanks for having me on the show. That's London's Mayor, Matt Brown. We need to pause. When we return, we'll stay on the subject and talk to CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, Jerry McCartney. You're listening to London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike's a little under the weather today. It's been an interesting start to the week. We've had some good news and some bad. The good came Monday afternoon when we got word that Maple Leaf Foods was going to build a $660 million facility in London that will create nearly 1,500 jobs. The bad came Sunday night and Monday morning when General Motors announced its global restructuring that will result in the closure of the Oshawa plant that they had been operating since 1953. The GM news is terrible for Oshawa and bad news for spinoff jobs, which could impact London. The Maple Leaf news is good for us, not great. For St. Mary's who will be losing their plant to talk about this and the changing landscape in the region. We're joined by Jerry McCartney, the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for your time today. No, you're most welcome. Uh, well, I want to start with uh, Maple Foods and then we'll circle over to, to GM because they kind of flow together in, in a way. Uh, obviously, uh, Maple, Maple Leaf uh, coming uh, to, to, to London with uh, a huge facility both in size and in dollar value is just absolutely massive.
6: It's huge. It's, um, it adds to the already uh, successful agri-food cluster that we have here in London. Uh, but before I go any further, kudos and, and full marks to the uh, London Economic Development Corporation for having spent three years on this file. This, uh, You know, people kind of think these things happen overnight. They do not. They take a lot of time and a lot of negotiations. Uh, and they were very patient and very uh, confidential, I might add, in pulling this together. And that's really the magic. Uh, behind an economic development corporation like this. They get to work privately with private sector folks uh, to bring these kinds of announcements on board. Uh, they do it very professionally and very confidentially, so full marks to them.
0: This is one of those cases too, where I mean, you know, politicians don't create jobs; they create the environment for jobs, and and that's the kind of the case we see here at other places where it because it takes time; it takes three years sometimes to to get uh, a huge influx of jobs.
6: No, you couldn't have said it better. That's exactly right. And and the other thing that happens with uh, private sector corporations is they. They're worried that things get leaked prematurely or that some uh, politician may grab credit for something. And that, that is often spoiled uh, or, in some cases, canceled deals like that because if they can't depend on a community to be confidential, uh, why would they want to invest there? So I think we've handled this extremely well, uh, and, and the rewards are obvious. We've got uh, one of the biggest announcements in Canadian history for that sector, and, and it uh, really bodes well for London's future.
0: The, you mentioned before that the sector here with, with agri-foods and uh, uh, foods in, in London, it's not the first of these types of uh, companies we've seen come to London. Certainly this may be one of the largest investments we've seen, but it's really you know, a nice growing piece for London and for the region.
6: Yeah, we've got over 7,000 people engaged in this sector now, so that's uh, clearly one of the largest, and it's growing fast. If you look back 10 years ago, we didn't have the cakery. We didn't have Dr. Oker and others. And these are, they cluster, they tend to gather in the same vicinity, in the same area. And why do they do that? Uh, if you look at London and the immediate market area around us, uh, we're, we could truly boast that we're Canada's kitchen. We're surrounded by dairy and wheat and poultry, and these are all the ingredients that it takes to, uh, to make a very vibrant uh, food cluster in an agri-food business area.
0: Our location helps with that as well. You know, being close to Detroit, close to Toronto, four hundred one, four hundred two. We have an airport here, so in terms of um, being just positionally in, in the right spot, it, it's it's a benefit to us.
6: Gosh, Dad, we should hire you to be in the uh, economic development marketing <laughs> area. That's, that's exactly right. We're in, we're in a very strategic. Uh, we call it the catbird seat. If you took a compass and arced out a. a, a one-day drive from London, never mind airports and other. But we're within uh, that drive. You you would find 50 percent of uh, North America's population, about 49 percent of its payroll, and about 49 percent of its GDP. Uh, That's all within a one-day drive of London. Now, yes, you could move that compass point around, but we're in that strategic uh, catbird seat in in terms of just-in-time delivery and the right geography at the right time.
0: Over the past, you know, 15, 20 years, we've become a little bit better at, you know, maybe diversifying um, what, we, what we are about. We're not just about one specific thing. Uh, that said, the agri foods sector, is that really uh, maybe a, a growing area for London or maybe the future for London?
6: Absolutely. If you uh, look around the planet, whether you're talking Asia, Europe, or anyplace else, what the world needs is clean, safe, sustainable food. Uh, and we're the, the kind of technology that we have here is coveted around the world. So the more plants we have like this one, like maple leaf and others, uh, the more we're looked at as the leading edge of that, uh, that requirement around the planet. Uh, we don't uh, have anybody doing it any better, and I think that's what the world sees right now. We've got a lot of Asian companies looking at Canada for that clean, safe, sustainable food production, uh, and we've got it right here in London, Ontario.
0: The flip side to that, of course, is uh, the unfortunate news we saw with uh, GM in Oshawa and that plant closing. That's uh, bad news for Oshawa, bad news for uh, Ontario and really the country. But in terms of spinoffs, that's something that could impact uh, many different communities, uh, London being one of them.
6: It's true. Uh, Not good news, and I feel very badly for Oshawa and the families that will be affected by that. It's, um, It's something that I think futurists and others have seen coming. Uh, GM has clearly made a statement that they need to conserve uh, dollars, Uh, but I think the the message that we ought to take from it as Londoners is is what GM is saying longer term. They're not looking at uh, combustion engines anymore. They're looking at uh, electrical vehicles and and, uh, autonomous vehicles. These are things we need to be thinking about as a society and particularly as an economy here in London. Uh, if that's the way that industry is going and they're the largest uh, in that space, uh, then the others are not far behind. Uh, we need to make sure that we're, we're on top of that technology and that we're reacting to it accordingly. Um, I'm not sure where buses will be in that, in that conversation, but we need to take a look at that as well.
0: To what degree uh, the manufacturing sector will look like, we don't know. I mean, I've, it'll be there in some fashion, but these things tend to evolve. But, uh, you know, that's one of the it's, it's interesting. Both of these announcements happened on Monday uh, and we just see some of the transition in London, which is historically been quite heavy with manufacturing uh, in, in that sector, kind of shifting away from that a little bit.
6: Well, it may be shifting. I think it's more uh, changing, and it is shifting, you're right, but there will always be manufacturing. At some point, somebody has to make things. Uh, we still have about 26% of our workforce engaged in, in manufacturing, but it may look different uh, down the road than it looks today, and I think we have to be prepared to evolve with it, make sure we're on top of those trends, and uh, and react accordingly.
0: But as you say, it is that, that trend, and uh, potentially what we see with GM, uh, we could see with some other companies and other automobile companies, and so it's something to be mindful for the future.
6: Absolutely right, and going back to your other point, the more diversified we can make our economy, and things like uh, agri-food and the uh, digital economy and so forth, the better off we'll be. Uh, that way we can buffer any of these economic upturns or downturns and react to those accordingly as well.
0: Jerry, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
6: Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks.
0: That's Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are into the home stretch on London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I'm sure you have, but have you seen how low Gas prices have been in lately in London. Gas is selling for 90.9 cents a liter for regular today. You might be yelling up the radio now telling me not to jinx it, but I don't think you need to worry. All indications are these prices are here to stay for a couple more weeks. Call it an unexpected Christmas gift before the new year arrives. Once 2019 arrives, we can expect an increase due to the federal carbon tax coming into effect. That'll bump gas prices up by about 5 cents. That's then, and this is now, and we've got some pretty good gas prices, all things considered, and London's one of the better places in the province to buy gas. To talk about this, we're joined by gas price analyst Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com. Thanks for your time today.
7: Uh, good to be here, Devin. Thank you.
0: I uh, can't help but notice as I uh, drive around London, seeing some uh, pretty nice uh, gas prices, and uh, it, they've been uh, pretty, in a pretty good position for a while. Is this something maybe we could expect to uh, to linger for a little bit here?
7: Well, a lot of people are smiling these days, uh, Devin, only because uh, these prices are substantially lower than what anyone would have thought of just uh, five, six weeks ago, when many thought we'd be going to $100 a barrel oil, and we'd be seeing prices more in the $1. thirty range. Right now, of course, uh, you can get prices as high as a dollar four, dollar five point nine, all the way down to ninety cents here in London. Uh, and it's likely that that price, uh, although it could go up on the wholesale side, about two cents a liter tonight. The general trend is, uh, at least until the first or second week of December, uh, that we're going to see prices remain where they are, uh, possibly go a little lower, depending, of course, on uh, markets and how they react to a whole host of. Uh, Bad news, including uh, the possibility that at the G20 meeting here, uh, President Trump will uh, make uh, good on his promise to uh, land-based Chinese uh, imports, uh, some $200 billion worth. So that's likely to force downward pressure on uh, energy commodities, including gasoline.
0: Oil prices uh, lower than what we expected. What changed to allow that to happen?
7: Well, it has a lot to do with geopolitics and uh, the... uh, Leading up to November 4th, when the U.S. was to impose harsh sanctions on Iran, Uh, it it did impose sanctions on some of its economic uh, output, but it uh, basically gave Iran a pass when it came to oil. There was a sense that uh, if you were to uh, embargo all Iranian oil exports, the world would have been left short by a million barrels a day. Instead, at the last moment, the uh, U.S. State Department, the Trump administration, despite its... uh, comments uh, leading up to that date, decided uh, to give exemptions to pretty much every major oil-importing nation, and here I'm referring to India, China, uh, the South Korea, Taiwan. Uh, anybody who needed an exemption got one. That meant that uh, rather than having uh, the shortage, we suddenly have a massive surplus. Not only that, in the weeks leading up to it, the president uh, warned and uh, pushed uh, OPEC to produce a lot more oil, about a million and a half more barrels than it otherwise would have. And we have reports this morning that Saudi Arabia has broken all-time records in terms of production at 11.2 million barrels. So, what it really means is there's a glut, and that glut's not likely to be resolved at least until OPEC meets again on the 6th of November of December. And with that, we have at least a window of opportunity of at least two weeks where prices are likely to remain relatively low, perhaps even going a little lower.
0: It's a nice little uh, Christmas uh, treat, I guess. I mean, how low potentially could they go?
7: Well, you know, who would have thought ninety cents a liter in the evenings here in London uh, just a couple of months ago? You know, you may see a few gas stations move down to eighty-five. Should we see a two-dollar a barrel decrease? Uh, put it in perspective: uh, at the beginning of October, the uh, international, the North American benchmark for oil, WTI, West Texas Intermediate, was seventy-six plus a barrel. Now it's just barely over $50, 51. So, uh, yes, a big uh, uh, you know, setback, I think, for producers, but certainly uh, welcomed by most consumers who are now saving. If you're looking at about $70 a liter compared to the beginning of uh, September, you're probably saving about 18 bucks a week on fill-ups. So, uh, yes, definitely a, uh, an early Christmas gift and likely to remain at least for the next several weeks, uh, at which point uh, I think we'll probably be saving enough to save up a few dollars for the odd uh, Christmas gift. However... On uh, January 1st, the uh, federal Liberal government will be reimposing a carbon tax. So uh, I think that's the big bump we're going to see, and that'll push prices up permanently for the 2018 for, for 2019 uh, to the tune of 5.3 cents a litre, increasing two and a half every year for the next three or four.
0: So for um, uh, once we get to you know January 1st because of uh, that carbon tax, could we? What are the chances we go back under a dollar anytime soon? Do you think?
7: Well, I think uh, if things remain the way they are, you would stay at a dollar, uh, maybe a few days, a few hours, every day under. Uh, but if, I'm seeing a lot of gas stations in the evening here in London selling for 90.9. So it's conceivable that uh, if nothing else were to change, uh, you'd be at 95, 96 cents a liter at the low end and a dollar ten at the high end. But I suspect that uh, the good times may not last forever, especially in the 2019 What's happened with all of these low, unexpected prices has been a surge in demand, especially in the United States. We saw that here in the last week with their Thanksgiving driving season. It was exceeded expectations in terms of sales, but also in terms of uh, of, of use of the fuel. And so I sense that by January and February, we're going to start to see a correction upwards. And by March, April, we could be back to the high prices we saw pretty much throughout most of 2018.
0: I was just uh, looking at uh, the website GasBuddy dot com, and this time last year we were in the dollar seventeen range. So uh, from then to now, quite the difference. But it, I guess it does illustrate just you know how uh, how much variance there can be and how these uh, prices can fluctuate.
7: Well, that's right. And of course, with oil at fifty dollars a barrel versus fifty five last year, with a carbon tax of uh, four point eight cents or so cap and trade last year. Uh, you can start to see where the difference gets made up. Uh, you know, $5 on the, or rather, $0.05 cents a litre on gasoline, another near $0.05 cents on the cap and trade. That's $0.10. Cents. So average prices, uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, vigorous activity from gas stations who are willing to shed their entire $0.11 cent retail margin in order to maintain market share and, of course, get you into the stores to buy other products. But, uh, you know, London has to be among the most vigorous and uh, competitive I would almost say cutthroat markets when it comes to gasoline stations. If you're in the business of selling gasoline in London, you better have a bigger plan selling other products because you're not going to make it selling regular gas.
0: That was going to be my next question in terms of just how London ranks. I mean, certainly maybe our quite it's, it's an it's an aggressive market, but do we generally does that result in better prices in other parts of the province?
7: Yeah, I think London sort of stands out. I mean, there are examples in Ottawa and Windsor, sometimes even over in Chatham, but. Uh, you know as a uh, as a habit uh, as a routine uh, there is uh, uh, you know obviously after four, four and five o'clock and later into the evenings it is now well known that gas stations uh, tend to rid themselves of uh, what it costs to turn on the pumps to recognize or honor credit cards and reward programs uh, you know it's i you know there is no way a standalone gasoline station selling exclusively gasoline in uh, London can really survive, so it is uh, among the best, com- most competitive markets as far as retailers are concerned. Gas stations are giving away their lifeline in order to keep your business and have you, you know, coming to their stations. Beyond that, uh, there aren't many you know, cities that compare to it. Uh, you might get a few that might come close to it from time to time, but uh, if I'm buying gasoline and I had uh, some I could wave a magic wand and transport my vehicle myself to any city in Ontario, it would be London when it comes to buying and fueling up.
0: Dan, I certainly appreciate the time and the insight. Thank you very much.
7: Hey, that was great. Thanks for reaching out, Devin.
0: That's Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Today is Giving Tuesday. Is tomorrow something? That's a legit question. I mean, I I I Googled it earlier. We have Black Friday. There's something on Saturday too, I believe. I, I saw so I Googled it and someone said worried Wednesday. <laughs> worried because you've spent so much money. I don't know if it is. Giving Tuesday, though, is uh, this is the seventh year of Giving Tuesday. And do you partake? There was an interesting study I saw that came out last year that found Canadians are more likely to donate a dollar or two at the till when you're at a store than to participate in some kind of other fundraising pitch. Which is probably why we see so many of them when we go to the store. Again, this is a survey from last year. I think it still applies, though. Survey found in the past uh, couple of years, two-thirds of Canadians have donated a loonie or a toonie when asked at a cash register, 10% more than the uh, next popular method, which is fundraising requests from family and friends. As much as we participate in retailer charity, Canadians also conflicted about the motives from some of those retailers. Survey found more than half of Canadians take part in events like shopping or dining for a cause where a portion of the proceeds go to charity. We participate, but with some skepticism. Three-quarters of respondents said the uh, sponsoring business is generally trying to help, but 68% also fail. The comp- companies are just motivated by positive PR. I sometimes... Uh, Feel bad when I'm, you know, at a grocery store or the LCBO or anywhere and they say, Hey, do you want to contribute uh, $2 to this or to that or anything? Sometimes I do. Sometimes, you know, I, I just, I was just somewhere else and I did it the other day. I'm not going to do it back to back days. And you don't want to look like you're, uh, you're cheap or you're not, you're not caring. But uh, it, it's, I mean, clearly it's an effective way. And maybe it's the new way of uh, of raising money. I'd be curious about um, any charities who were to maybe exclusively go that route. There was uh, a group called Canada Helps who were um, calling on Canadians to take part in Giving Tuesday. Apparently, in 2017... Uh, an estimated 6 million Canadians took part in Giving Tuesday. Since its inception in 2013, Canada helps us see an increase of 468% in overall donations made on the uh, day of Giving Tuesday. And so this one story I saw today was saying Giving Tuesday, now it's in sixth year. I saw one earlier, it said it's the seventh year. Six or seven years. I mean, one thing I just was unsure of, because i i a while ago, not sure why, a while ago I signed up for uh, this little thing that comes down my email every day. I thought, oh, it might be neat if you see some sort of weird day, like today is peanut butter day, say. So I signed up for that, and now I keep getting them. I could unsubscribe, but I don't. But every day is something. There's typewriter day, there's, you know, calipiter month, it, there's uh, there's everything, Which raises the question, who is deciding all this, and who is organizing it, and is it really just a thing where it's almost like Wikipedia, where people just keep randomly adding it to themselves, and if so, can I have like Wednesday, November 28th, or November 28th, not just a Wednesday, just every November 28th is Devon Day? How do I sponsor it so it's just my own day? Or your own day. I don't know. I'd be remiss, since it is uh, Giving Tuesday, to uh, not mention that I am uh, raising uh, money for uh, Movember for uh, two reasons, uh, for for two different causes. Uh, I've mentioned my uh, family's, uh, my father's issues with uh, cancer. Uh, Right now, dealing with prostate cancer and multiple myeloma, so I'm uh, growing a mustache as part of Movember. Uh, To raise money up to $1,198, if you'd be so kind as to donate, that would be uh, much appreciated. You can uh, find my Movember page at the—they uh, it's they have the complicated URL. So if you just go to the Mo- Movember homepage, search Devin Peacock, you can find my page. And if you would be so kind as to donate to any money, that would be uh, fantastic. I just uh, ask if uh, you do donate—so uh, you say you're going to donate $10 to $5 to Movember, $5 to multiple my- myeloma— And the link for multiple myeloma is included on my Movember page. But um, three days away, and I've got just as many people saying they want me to keep the mustache as uh, shave-it-off. So we shall see. Although the shave-it-off people seem to be winning at the moment. We will break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the program. This is London Live. And Devin, in for Mike on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Well, thanks to uh, Colin James, to Carl Littler, Karen Finlay-Russell, Martin Belanger, Matt Brown, Jerry McCartney, and Dan McKay for coming on today's show. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a uh, recording of an absolutely ludicrous 911 call. And we're doing that because earlier today, London police sent out a release that said one-third of the calls they have received to 911 don't actually deal with an emergency. Often they'll hear someone say... It's not an emergency, but, or the call will start. I tried calling the non-emergency number, but didn't get a response, so I'm calling you. London Police say in the first 10 months of the year, their communication Center received 171,510 911 calls. That's up 10% from last year. Total number of calls received by the center for the same period is also up 11% from the previous year. So police put in this release, and they had to based on the nature of the resplits. Sad they had to include this, so I'm going to quote here. If there is a crime in progress or one just occurred, there is no clear danger to you or anyone else. Or someone has died or is seriously injured, call 911. But if you're reporting a crime that did not just happen, have a noise complaint or are looking for a device, call the non-emergency line. So in honor of that, I present you with a 911 call from the U.S., where a woman called police because Burger King did not get her order right. Have a great day, Mike. Or someone will be back with you tomorrow at one o'clock.
8: department, how can I help you? Yeah, I'm over here. I'm over here at Burger King right here in San Clemente. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not San Clemente. I'm sorry. Um, I live in San Clemente. I'm in Laguna Niguel. I think that's where I'm at. Uh-huh. I'm at a drive-through right now. Uh-huh. I had I ordered my food three times. They're mopping the floor inside, and I understand they're busy. They're not even busy. Okay, I've been the only car here. I asked them four different times to make me a Western barbecue burger. Okay, they keep giving me a hamburger with lettuce, tomato, and cheese, onions. And I said, I'm not leaving. Uh-huh. I want a Western burger because I just got my kids from Taekwondo. They're hungry. I'm on my way home, and I live in San Clemente. Uh-huh. Okay, she, said, she gave me another hamburger. It's wrong. I said, four times. I said, I want it. She goes, can you go out and park in front? I said, no. I want my hamburger right. So then the, the lady came to the manager, she, or whatever, whoever she is. She came up, and she said, um... She said, do um, you want your money back? And I said, no, I want my hamburger. My kids are hungry, and I have to jump on that toll freeway. I said, I am not leaving this spot. And I, and I said, I will call the police, because I want my Western burger done right. Now, is that so hard? Okay, what exactly is it you want us to do for you? I send an officer down here. I want, I want them to make Bert, me right. Ma'am, we're not going to go down there and enforce your Western bacon cheeseburger. What am I supposed to do? This is, this is between you and the manager. This, we're not going to go enforce how to make a hamburger. That's not, that's not a criminal issue. There's there, there's nothing criminal. So I just there. stand here. So I just sit here. You walk. you need to calmly and rationally speak to the manager and figure out what to do between you. She did come up and I said, Can I please have my Western burger? She she said, I'm not dealing with she walked away. Cause because they're mopping the floor and it's all full of suds and they don't want to run they don't want to go through there and and, then, and ma'am, then I suggest you get your money back and go somewhere else. This 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 is this is not a criminal issue. We can't go out there and and make them make you a cheeseburger the way you want it. Well, that is, that, you're supposed to be here to protect me. Well, what are we protecting you from, a wrong cheeseburger? No, it's is just... This a, like, is this a harmful cheeseburger or something? I don't understand what you want us to do. Well, just come down here. I'm, I'm not leaving No, ma'am, I'm not sending the deputies down there over a cheeseburger. You need to go in there and act like an adult and either get your I money back and go home. She not acting like an adult herself. I'm sitting here in my car. I just want them to make my kids a a Western burger. Ma'am, this is what I suggest. I suggest you get your money back from the manager and you go on your way home.
0: Okay. Okay? Bye-bye.